changing fast and the issues are becoming increasingly complex from global warming to social change to disparity in wealth. All of these issues ask us to dig deep. Each of us has the capacity to adapt, creatively adapt to changing outside conditions, but we really haven't tapped into that much. And of course, the aggression is a sign that we're failing to do so. My name is Donna Jones. This is the Insight to Action podcast. This is the place where you'll gain insights and inspiration from innovative thinkers and doers in business who hold a higher vision for humanity. If you're interested in co-creating the future moment by moment, this is the program where you'll meet people like you. When I started the Evolutionary Provocator podcast in 2008, which is my former podcast program, Joseph J. Bragdon was one of my first guests. His work it researches the question, is caring for people and planet profitable? And it was intuitively sensible because the companies in his investment index followed the principles of life. And these are the same principles that have managed complex adaptive systems on the planet for 4.5 billion or so years. Joseph J. Bragdon is a money manager for high net worth families and a pioneer in the field of corporate stewardship. He co-authored the first empirical study on the linkages between stewardship and profitability in 1972. In the early 1990s, his research lens moved from linear thinking processes of traditional corporate analysis to nonlinear, more holistic processes of systems thinking. To assess the viability of this new approach, he created in 1996 what I would call Learning Lab of Corporate Living Asset Stewardship Exemplars, which later became the Global LAMP Index. The, the lab was completed in 2004. In 2006, he published the book Profit for Life, which was based on a case study of 16 out of the 60 companies in the index. And it presented a Living Asset Stewardship, or LAS, as a strategically superior model of corporate management, one that is fast overtaking traditional industrial capitalist model. Today we're talking about Jay's more recent book, which is called Companies That Mimic Life, which is taking another segment out of these companies in the index and looking at them more closely. So Jay, really excited to have you on the program. And now let's jump into what have you discovered from your research about companies that mimic life? Well, well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Donna, for that fine introduction. Briefly, Companies that mimic life are an emerging genre that operate on radically different principles, as you suggested, than traditionally managed companies. And we can get to those in a moment. But for now, let me simply say, my research affirms that the leading exemplars of this model share four distinctive advantages over traditionally managed firms. In short, they are, these firms are more adaptive, they're more profitable, more sustainable, and longer-lived. Now, my evidence for these claims is easy to find. The companies featured in my book are all innovation hothouses. They are clear profit leaders in their global industries with top grades for sustainability and ethical leadership from independent resources. In addition, their average and median ages exceed a century, and to highlight this last point, according to the consultancy InnoSight, by contrast, the average age of companies in the Standard & Poor 500 index today is only 18 years, and that's down from 60-plus years in 1958 and 25 years in 1980. 
And by the way, the trend is, is, is still shrinking. Reflecting on the companies I've studied, my most interesting discovery is the strong correlation between their life-mimicking qualities and their profitability. The link here is employee commitment and engagement. People who work for authentically life-mimicking companies are inspired because they feel their work has meaning, a life-affirming purpose that arouses their curiosity and makes them want to innovate. I think anyone can grasp that. When people work with their hearts as well as their minds, they're bound to be more productive and innovative than those who simply work for a paycheck. This is confirmed, by the way, by the global consultancy AON, which finds a strong correlation between employee engagement and profitability. So, Jay, what are the qualities of a company that is systematically and intentionally, consciously, managing itself in a, in a life-affirming way? Great question. To begin with, they place a higher value on living assets, that is, people and nature, than they do on non-living capital assets. And this is their biggest point of departure from the traditional norm of industrial capitalism, which does the opposite by placing a higher value on capital assets than on people and nature. Beyond this fundamental difference, companies that mimic life are organized and managed very differently than the older corporate norm. In my book, I've noted six clear differences that set them apart from this older model, all of which resemble core attributes of life. And uh, I'll try and, and briefly summarize them here. First, in terms of organization, they are radically decentralized and networked, much like the cells in our bodies. This is a flexible structure that is very different from the top-down bureaucratic hierarchies of traditionally managed firms. Secondly, life-mimicking companies function differently. They are self-organizing, self-making, and self-regenerating as a means of perpetuating and passing on their cultural DNA. To do this, leaders serve the growth of employees to make them smarter, stronger, and more enterprising, a style we call servant leadership. And as you can imagine, this is very different from the older norm of bossing employees, and it's far more effective. A third difference, life-mimicking companies are more frugal in the ways they manage their resources and finances. Like all living beings, they instinctively work to reduce waste and entropy. This is particularly easy to see among leading manufacturing companies through the emerging field of industrial ecology, where they produce greater value with fewer inputs of energy and resources. And we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later. Frugality, I might uh, add, also leads to stronger balance sheets and free cash flow. A fourth difference, companies that mimic life are more open in the ways that they manage and share information. Like all life, they require continual feedback in order to learn and adapt to the living world in which they exist. Consequently, information is not restricted to a privileged few executives, but widely dispersed to frontline employees and stakeholders as a means of strengthening corporate networks. We see evidence of this, by the way, in the emerging movement towards integrated sustainability and financial reporting. 
where life-mimicking companies have been prominent early movers. A fifth difference, companies that mimic life are more symbiotic than traditionally managed ones. They know their strength and well-being is connected to the well-being of society and nature, the larger living systems in which they exist and operate. So they work to strengthen these systems by creating what Harvard B-School professor Michael Porter calls shared value. I offer many examples of this in my book, such as open source platforms, where leadership companies share with the world what they know in order to make the larger system more sustainable. And by the way, Nike and Unilever are two prime examples of this. Finally, life-mimicking companies are more conscious than their traditionally managed peers. This is an emergent quality. This consciousness is an emergent quality that is strengthened by the other five I've just named. And as you can imagine, empowered frontline employees working through open interactive networks invest the firm with a greater breadth of vision and systemic uh, insight, a breadth that is beyond the ken of companies that rely primarily on the insights of top executives. So to sum up this answer to this question, in authentic life-mimicking companies, these six qualities are inseparable, just as the major systems of our body are inseparable. And my book, I believe, is distinctive in presenting them as such. To my knowledge, no other author has done this. Well, I totally agree. That's why, why your work, when I initially came across, it was so, so exciting for me because it was intuitively, as I said earlier, intuitively sensible. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it just makes sense. So, yeah, excellent. And it's exciting to me, too. I mean, this has, been, this has just been one of the most amazing learning journeys I, I, I've been on. I dream about it at night. <laughs> that strong. I, I can see why, because, you know, first of all, you know, humanity's become so disconnected from the planet as a whole that we tend not to yep. remember that this is how it works. And so when you actually put together a research pl- platform that you've done, a lab like you've done, and you find out that, in fact, what's intuitive is, is also real, you know, it, it shows up in the research, it's extremely uh, affirming. Yeah, and, and you know, the exciting part of this, and, and this is part of the subtitle of my book, is that I feel that this is part of an emerging renaissance, and a renaissance that is being led by corporations, of all things, the, the very entities that have been blamed for the problems that we're all experiencing of, uh, of uh, climate change and ecological overstep and fraying social safety nets and, and, and financial stress. It's these progressive companies are, are really uh, reinventing capitalism in a way that's very affirming. And I believe it, it, it really is on the leading edge of an emerging renaissance. Let's talk a bit about the management style, because there's no question that the old command and control structures are, are doomed. And uh, if I can put it that way, but making the jump from defining yourself on the basis of telling other people what to do to running your to, to being who you are, being a leader or a decision maker in this kind of a um, uh, comic in, in this kind of life 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 mimicking company is completely completely different. What what is the management style? What's the mindset you you have to bring in to your work in these companies? 
an- another great question, and, and before answering this, I, I got to say that you and I met through the Society for Organizational Learning, and organizational learning and the speed of learning and adaptation is a key part of the answer to that question. To accomplish this speed of, of learning and adaptation, companies in, in the LAMP Index, which has been my learning lab, spend an enormous amount of resources on educating employees and engaging them in idea sharing. More importantly, they also inspire employees with a life-affirming mission, a compelling vision of the future, and a galvanizing sense of what employees can contribute as individuals. Now, stylistically, we call this managing by means because inspired enterprising employees are the means of generating corporate returns. Now, as you can imagine, this is far more engaging than the older style of managing by statistical results, which is spiritually deadening. Because people, just think of it this way, people want to work for something that's more meaningful than generating numbers of sales and profits. They really want want to feel engaged in what they're doing. So this is one of the core themes of my book, and the text is full of examples. Among these are Ken Iverson's uh, decision in 1965 to make Nucor's, Nucor Steel, their frontline employees, the creative center of the company, where the role of executives was to help employees reach their fullest potential. And, and this has just been enormously successful. I tell a story in the, in, in the book about how Nucor, with no research and development department, no R&D department, has become the most innovative and productive and greenest steel company in its industry and far and away the most profitable. Anyhow, moving on, this was also George David's motive. In 1996, when he intro- introduced United Technologies' exceptional employee scholar program, under this, UTC pays for full tuition and books so that any employee can pursue any degree of their choice up to PhD in whatever field they choose, including art, philosophy, and literature, with no strings attached. No need to study business, statistics, finance. They can choose anything they want to study. Now, to conventional bottom-line thinkers, the money that uh, Nucor and UTC spent on educating and serving employees must seem wasteful. For example, UTC has spent well over a billion dollars on its employee scholarship. But what linear thinkers miss in dismissing such costs is how these expenditures on educating and inspiring employees have a nonlinear multiplier effect. This is hard to measure by traditional accounting methods, but I think we can get a general sense sense of it by looking at the trends of a company's shareholder value over time. And this is where my perspectives, um, uh, I think, shed some light. For example, from year-end 1997, the first full year of UTC's Employee Scholar Program, to today, its shares have grown in value more than fourfold, far outpassing the Standard Poor 500 Index and UTC's nearest competitor, GE, whose shares over this period, by the way, show no net gain. Now, uh, before I I, uh, leave this comparison, I I have to say that um, uh, UTC is an exemplar of managing by means. GE, on the other hand, is uh, more oriented towards managing by results. 
which is the, the statistical alternative. And the differences in their rates of return have just been astonishing. The mindset of, of uh, both CEOs, Ken Iverson and George David, at the time they undertook these revolutionary experiments, was to ex extend the breadth of vision of the companies they led, to raise the systems thinking capacity of employees by an inspire, inspiring it and, and empowering them. And we can add to this, metaphorically, what they did went well beyond that. In effect, they developed cultures where employees function like a permeable living membrane, one through which information and resources could pass as needed so the firm could adapt quickly as market conditions change. These are amazing stories. I love them. You've hit something now that, that I know I hear a lot in my conversations with, with thought leaders in my, in my ecosystem, and that is about investors and ROI and so forth. Most investors go in looking for immediate gain. You know, can I mm -hmm. get in and take out fast? And, 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 but this is a different kind of investment mindset. Uh, what kind of investors show up for companies that serve the wider benefit of society like the ones that mimic life? What, what you just described is very much the culture of, of uh, Wall Street, much of the investment community, this focus on short-term returns. But on the other hand, if you look at, the, um, at, look at the big institutions, the big pension funds, the big endowments, they have a, a, a different focus. And so uh, let me address that. Because companies that mimic life generate better returns with less risk, and that's, what impor that's, that's what's important to these big institutional investors. Because they, they generate better returns with less risk than their conventionally managed peers, the big investors are naturally drawn to them. The thing that I'm trying to get at here is that few people really understand the reasons for this advantage, and I hope my book will shed some needed light on this. The effectiveness of managing by means is largely overlooked by Wall Street analysts who are typically focused on numbers with a view to quick returns. And to illustrate this difference in, uh, in outlook, I tell a story in the book about Unilever's CEO, Paul Pullman, about the time an investment analyst asked him why he didn't put more emphasis on short-term results, on providing investors with more guidance on corporate profits. His now famous response was, if you buy into our long-term value creation model, then come and invest with us. If you don't, I respect you, but don't put your money in our company. To this, he added, Unilever has been around for more than a century, we intend to, and we intend to be around for several hundred more years. A pretty incredible statement. That says it all. I mean, it, it, it completely lays it on the line. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. And, and to offer some perspective on this story, a few years before this incident, Unilever had committed to a deeply life-affirming goal, and you're going to love this. It was called the Sustainable Living Plan. It sought to cut in half the environmental footprint of the company's products while doubling sales and at the same time improving the living standards of more than a billion people in emerging markets where Unilever sources its raw materials. To the analyst who posed the question about short-term earnings guidance, this long-term goal was unconventional, even unimaginable, yet Pullman got the bigger picture. 
the galvanizing effect the sustainable living plan would have on employees and suppliers who were inspired by Unilever's mission. As a brief aside, since introducing that plan, Unilever has become one of the world's most popular employers, a status affirmed by both Glassdoor and LinkedIn. And this, of course, enables it to attract an extraordinary depth of young talent, which just keeps the ball rolling. Now, now returning to the effect uh, such long-term vision has on investment returns, it's worth noting, from the turn of the millennium to this day, Unilever shares have risen more than threefold from roughly $14 a share to $43 currently, a time when the Standard & Poor's 500 has risen by little more than 40%. Now, that's pretty good performance. Not many companies can match it. Now, that tells me that we should dive in a bit into how this index came about because you've got some returns that I've used in my, in my talks that really illustrate the mindset, the, the value of the mindset, you know, how you actually, there is value creation because the thinking is not focused on one thing or another. It's focused on the whole picture and it creates a completely different dynamic inside the company, but also on the balance, you know, on the balance sheet. So can we learn a little bit more about the global lamp index and, and how the original 60 came about and then how the, you know, came about to pull the seven that you've profiled in this book? Okay, wonderful. I actually started work on the LAMP Index in 1995, although, as, as you pointed out, it wasn't until 1996 that I really had a viable list of companies. And in the decade from there to, uh, to 2004, I went through a process, as you can well imagine, of, of testing, revising, retesting, uh, trying to create a balance between the uh, types of companies in, in, in the uh, learning lab making them comparable to those in the Morgan Stanley Capital International World Index so that when we, were, when we come to compare the LAMP index to, say, global benchmark indices, we're making a level comparison and, and not stacking uh, the LAMP index in favor of one industry or another. So what we, what we ended up aiming for was best of breed in living asset stewardship within this spectrum of indices. Now, during this 10-year period, in which I was kind of evolving the Global LAMP Index, I continually sharpened my definition of, of living asset stewardship best practices and corporate biomimicry because these attributes were then evolving rapidly. And you can follow much of, uh, of this evolution through the seven companies I've selected for the book. Now, to get to those seven companies, interestingly, and, 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 and this was deliberate on my part, all operate in industries that are often criticized for unsustainable and unethical practices. And in taking this approach, I wanted to show that living asset stewardship works brilliantly, even in the most challenging environments, and particularly in manufacturing. So here are the seven companies. Nucor, which is in steelmaking. United Technologies, which is an industrial conglomerate. Henkel, which is in specialty chemicals. Nike, sportswear, but in, in, in their case, the company had a lot of its contract plants in, in the third world, which created a great deal of criticism in, in the 80s and 90s and uh, had a lot to do with um, the, their, eventually, their eventual change in culture. Anyhow, 
Another company, Novo Nordisk, is in pharmaceuticals, another industry that's been frequently uh, criticized for price gouging, tax dodging, Unilever, household products, and Westpac banking, and of course, we all know stories about the banking industry. All seven companies have been exceptionally successful in industries that are often criticized for being unsustainable. I, I, like, uh, I like presenting a case in a, in a kind of a counterintuitive way because it, it, it really gets you to thinking. Now, as an aside, there are no tech companies, uh, if you reflect back on the list I just mentioned, the no tech companies in our group of seven, none like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, or Google, which would have skewed results in, a, in an upward direction. These are all in the uh, comparator indices that we use, but, but we haven't used them. We've, we focus mainly on manufacturing and, uh, and banking. So that's uh, just a brief history. Based on this, uh, perhaps we have a little more perspective on uh, uh, continuing our conversation on performance. Yeah, no, thank you, which, which is what we'll get to next because you've pulled out these seven companies that, that are profiled in, in, in the book. What kinds of, but overall, what kinds of returns do companies that mimic life see against their counterparts? You know, does managing, as part of a living system, manage to create financial health without sacrificing employee health or, or the customer, in the case of the pharmaceutical industry, in the process? Right. Well, there's a lot of statistical evidence in the book. And, and I present this in, in, in uh, appendices where the companies are named, rates of return are, are shown, credit ratings are shown. But anyhow, from cycle to cycle, over the past 20 years, the companies in my learning lab, uh, that, that is the broader global LAMP index, have substantially outperformed global comparator indices. And you referred to this earlier. More particularly, the seven companies featured in the book, which comprise the best of the best within this lab, have done even better. Now, you'll see evidence of this um, in the introduction to the book on a table that I present there, and, and I'll summarize what's on it. The uh, returns uh, of uh, both the LAMP index and the, uh, and, and the group of seven, which I call the focus group, have compounded towards consistently higher results. For example, relative to the Morgan Stanley Capital International World Index, the larger LAMP index, its three-year return, three return has been 10% better. That's the three years ending in, uh, at, at the end of uh, 2015. Its three-year return was 10% better. Its 10-year return, 50% better. And its 20-year return was four times better. These numbers have been verified by the investment consultancy, uh, Northfield Information Services, which has, done, which has visited my index four times since 2007. And, and their verification uh, carries a lot of credibility with institutional investors all over the world. Results for the seven-company focus group, which comprised the best of the best, were even more spectacular. Relative to the Morgan Stanley Capital International World Index, its three-year return was 40% better. Its 10-year return was four times better, and its 20-year return was six times better. Those are really amazing results. You might wonder, since uh, year-end uh, 2015, we've been through three calendar quarters. What's happened during that time? The seven-company focus group during this time, its return, you know, relatively slow market, has been 5.9% versus 3.4% for the MSCI World Index, roughly double. 
So the trend continues. Now, some may say this is all a matter of 2020 hindsight, and I've heard this before, that there's no reliable scientific evidence here, but I beg to differ. Since 1995, the composition of the Global Lamp Index has been remarkably stable, with a low turnover of only six companies. Four of those, by the way, were a result of mergers and acquisitions. So compared to other indices, including the S&P 500, such low turnover gives our learning lab a high degree of credibility. And of course, adding to it has been the um, verifications by Northfield Information Services. Now, thinking back on this, it's not, I, I can't say right now that I would, I, I wouldn't change the composition of the index if I had to start from scratch, because of course, it was largely put together um, a long time ago, focusing on companies that were leaders uh, back in the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s in screening companies for the index, I, I wanted to uh, see how they behaved through at least a few economic cycles to see whether they stayed loyal to, the, to their living asset stewardship or whether they were just fair weather stewards. But in any event, there's been very little turnover in the index. Some companies have, uh, have lagged a bit in their living asset stewardship. They've lagged the seven companies that um, we focused on. But even those that lag, I've noticed, remain committed and I think it's useful to keep them in the index, to keep them in the learning lab, to see how they adapt as the world about them changes. Evolution, as we know, moves and fits and starts. It's not a smooth, predictable process. They're fine companies. Yeah, very well said. It's certainly a very interesting process to observe. And, and I think the other thing that I want to raise here is that we often think that the most progressive stuff comes from the new companies. But that's not the case. These companies, what's the mean age of these companies again? The, the average and median ages of these companies is in excess of a century. Yeah. And, and that contrasts uh, with uh, Intersight's findings about the average age of, say, the Standard Poor 500 Index, which is, which is today around 18 years and, and shrinking. I saw a study recently that said 10 years, regardless of what size the company is. Yep, I know. So in, in any event, the larger companies that, that mimic, I describe them as working uh, in, in what we would call the industrial capitalist paradigm as kind of top-down command and control, they're, they're on their way out. And these new companies, that the ones that we're talking about today, are, are uh, on their way up. I think the mean and age of these companies at 100 years, that tells you these are adaptive companies. They know how to pay attention to what's going on in the outside, and they know how to adapt to it and adjust. Because that's, that's something that overall is, is a massive strategic advantage, and it's one that companies that manage in a more traditional model, and they sometimes get absorbed with what's going on on the inside and forget to even look out the window, they are putting themselves at a huge amount of risk. Oh, you've got it. You've got it. That's absolutely true. And we can get to that in a moment, but I, what I wanted to do is to reflect for a moment on your interest in how does managing a living system scale, and, and you refer to how do large companies do relative to small companies. Did I hear you right? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a logical flow because uh, because we talk first of all about age, but then related to that it, it, again because uh, the the companies that are greatest at risk right now are these big companies because they're like it's like trying to move the the Queenie cruise ship in the Milford Sound in New Zealand where that used to be the old joke. Now that's they have succeeded at that, but it's the idea is that these old companies can't change. They they're stuck and I don't think that's true. But if they decide that's true, then it, it is. So tell us about scale. Tell us about you have to be, you know, 10 or 30 or startup to be good at this. Or can you be a Unilever at 140,000 employees? Or Well, many people think that only small companies are capable of, of stewardship because the big ones get, you know, too big, too bureaucratic, uh, too focused on their size and not enough on the relationships that exist within the company and between the company and, and, and their stakeholders. But I think that large companies can be very effective uh, if we, you think of them as ecosystems. And I selected large companies for the LAMP Index um, for two reasons back in the, in the 1990s when I started this. First, because of public reporting requirements. There's just more available information on their practices. More researchers follow them, more opportunities for, uh, for really meaningful dialogue with people who've, who've, who've studied them. And second, I also wanted to show that uh, living asset stewardship and life-mimicking cu- cultures are, as, as you asked, are, are scalable. So if you think that only small companies can mimic life, I think that, that, that that's too simple. Think of a large company as an ecosystem. What's important here is how the system works. Is there an urge to life that drives it forward? Is there diversity that facilitates feedback, learning, and adaptation? And is there an inner balance that keeps the system from self-destructing? The companies in my learning uh, lab are large. They're basically, they're large cap and some mega cap. And as such, perhaps they're best seen as the center of ecosystems themselves. What they contribute to the whole, and, and this, is, this is the big thing, is their extraordinary capacity to learn and adapt. I often think of them as learning academies. And they have the resources to make important things happen. Think of Unilever and its sustainable living plan that I just described. Very few small companies could do anything on this scale. Unilever can pull it off and has been pulling it off, and it's just exceptional. And I think it's also expanding because they, they have not scaled down their vision. They've been, they've been ramping it up and, and spreading it out through, throughout the company, so that's extremely exciting. Yeah. What's the prognosis for large companies still using the traditional model of telling people what to do, hiring them, and then telling them what to do? Well, you know, here again, we can return what we were earlier talking about, the shortening life expectancies of these, um, of these companies. Insight says 18 years, and you've cited a, a lower number. But what we see here is a process of creative destruction, creative destruction where fault-prone systems are replaced by more robust ones. Now, companies that mimic life, they're survivors in this milieu because they operate. They, they uh, operate on the leading edge. They, they're uh, they are living systems in a world of living systems, and therefore they're way more adaptable, way more able to sense what's going on in the living world in which they exist. 
Wall Street uh, apologists will typically say that the, shrink, uh, the shrinking lifespans of traditionally managed companies is a result of, of say, rapid technology change. But what, what I'm seeing here is that these companies, uh, which are average age of, uh, in excess of a century, they've been through many cycles of technology change. It's their culture that's important. And cultures that make technology change possible so that over extended periods of time, through economic recessions, the Great Depression, through world wars, They've come out uh, through difficult times as leaders. If I can, just reflecting back on their management principles, just a few words I think can sum up their advantage. Harmony works better than dissonance. I think all of these companies have adopted very harmonic cultures, even going well back to their founding. Holistic thinking does better than ad hoc thinking. That's pretty simple. And respect does better than disrespect. Companies that mimic life understand these differences and they, and they build on these principles. And you know what else comes to mind as I was listening to you say that is that I'm, I've been hearing and I'm, I'm rather sick of hearing it about how people resist change, how they, you know, people don't change. And it goes on and on about this resistance to change thing. But in reality, in you go into these companies, I guarantee you, and you've just said it through that technological aspect of it, when you've got a learning mindset, change is not even it's not there's no fear attached to it because you know what you've got the confidence and trust inside yourself and inside the company at a collective level to tackle new stuff it's 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 an exciting adventure it's part of the growth edge that you know we would call uncertainty let's let's we don't know this this is great let's learn and so i think the what we're really pointing out here is that on the other levels is that if you've got a fear of change it's because there's a lack of trust and confidence in the company a lot of trust and confidence and a lot of excitement. Inspiration, I always emphasize that word, how the employees are inspired, how they really want to push the envelope, how they want to make a difference. Even in the steel company, Nucor, this is palpable. There's a professor up here at Dartmouth who refers to their culture as kind of an emotional infrastructure that makes these incredible gains in technology and their innovation possible. It's a uh, a wonderful thing to see at that company. Yeah, I think the other thing you're raising here in this little moment is this business of innovation, because in the traditionally managed companies, they talk about innovation, but they're they're because they don't have a learning mindset at all. The innovation is just a small tweak out of the past. It's not there's no big stretches being made, and this is not a time for tweaks. That the you know we're in a space where you've got to jump big and and be able to jump big and also bounce. You know, if you have a setback, you you don't use it to shrink and minimize risk. You use it to... To learn. Yes, learn and step into higher risk situations so you can learn, expand, you know, like like pull that capacity out rather than suppressing it. Pull it out and, and, and turn it loose. This is so much of the part of the culture of uh, United Technologies and Nucor and, you know, all of them. I mean, learning, learning from mistakes, not, not uh, pointing the finger and attaching blame. I'm looking again. These are companies that are much more responsible for their behavior because when you make a mistake and you say, "Gee, we made a mistake. Let's learn from it." Right away, you're expanding capacity immediately. It's there's, uh, yep. you know, that's fantastic. Now let's just look to sort of wrap this up. By the way, I, I'm really 
love to talk to each of these companies and perhaps that's something I'll do down the road because um, there are stories to be told in every one of them. I know I've heard some of the Herman Miller stories and their turnaround moments and yeah, there's a lot of wonderful, rich narrative in these dynamics inside the, the kinds of relationships that exist in these companies. You bet. Any particular advice you can offer traditional companies or companies that are know they have to change and are in that what I call the messy middle, the transformational middle, where the, the decision makers who are emerging, and these are going to be millennial Gen X, but they're aware that the status quo won't guarantee the future. Any particular advice you can offer them? Yeah. Well, the most important piece of advice I, I have is that there's really no middle ground between the industrial capitalist model of the firm and the life-mimicking model. They are conceptual and functional opposites. You can't bolt one onto the other because that's only going to generate friction and disharmony. Corporate leaders can't advocate for sustainability and other progressive um, items, but then act forcefully to protect the bottom line during a cyclical downturn by laying off thousands of people or by abandoning communities. That only creates confusion. So this is, not, this is not to say that transitioning from one culture to another is impossible, but it takes determination, credible commitment, and time to achieve. It took Nike, for example, nearly two decades to shift from a bottom-line-first marketing company to the global sustainability leader it is today. But its founder, Phil Knight, appalled by conditions at contract plants of its suppliers 30 years ago. He was determined to make a change, to make a difference. And even though the company's initial steps in the early 1990s got criticized as green, uh, greenwashing and uh, there was some pushback, Knight stuck with it, and he hired people who shared his commitment. Consequently, by the late 1990s, the company had self-organizing change teams in place, in 1999, these teams initiated a project called Team Shambhala that sought to get the entire company of 20,000 people grounded in a way of thinking that naturally took environmental and social issues into account in every decision and every action they made. And th thanks to uh, Knight's confidence in them, this became an organic self-organizing process. After a one-year intensive of group learning and engagement through uh, Shambhala, a cohort of 100 internal champions was selected who in turn launched dozens of landmark projects around, around the world to continue to advance Nike's sustainability objectives. So with the full support of Phil Knight and later CEO Mark Parker, these in-house pioneers created the life-mimicking, self-regenerating culture that you see today in Nike. So getting back to my advice to traditionally managed companies, there's no middle ground. If they want to change, they better start and start quickly moving towards the living system model and be totally committed to it. Otherwise, I honestly think they face the likelihood of death or takeover. There is no middle way. Like climate change and uh, ecological overstep, time is short. We have no time to waste. Boy, do I agree with you on that. I, I also know from my own research that most of these companies are employing change methods that don't work because they apply to a mechanistic uh, uh, mindset or, or mechanistic exactly. assumption. And so you have to really go in, you know, in terms of making faster change, 
you have to be very aware of the fact you're working with a complex adaptive system. So you just simply choose processes that go with that. And fortunately, they're very human. <laughs> they're very people-centered. So I've written about this in the Huffington Post, and and we've got the science around it from Fritov Capra, and and uh, and you've got the evidence of it, and then also the conversation I had with Irvin Laszlo as well from yep. the first episode. So so we know that in a complex adaptive system, you don't go in and treat it like a, a car part. You're not swapping out parts. You're 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 actually treating it as an entire system. Right, and and I think uh, you know this gets back to comments that I, I made earlier about those attributes of companies that mimic life. The the defining attributes of 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 a living system are properties of the whole. Not uh, it's not like a machine where you can pull it apart, disassemble the parts, and put them back together again. You really have to look at the at the system as a whole. Much deeper understanding. Yeah, it really is. And the sooner companies understand this, the better. And and the sooner they they start to operate on those uh, assumptions, the better. Absolutely. Jay, where do people go for more information? The book is on Amazon. Uh, The book book is on Amazon. Barnes & Noble, I would imagine, all the usual outlets. Yep, and the thing about the book, I've I've tried to I've tried to keep it as non-technical as possible. I've tried to really let it be a narrative of storytelling about how these things work. And yes, we use some financial lingo in there, like returns on equity or free cash flow or referring to balance sheets. But for the most part, the stories themselves are are stories that anyone can understand. So this this book can be read by people in management, can be read by people in finance, and it can also be read by people who are are uh, committed to change, who who see themselves as change agents. And the theme that uh, we are in the midst of a renaissance, that uh, I think we're in the early stages of the renaissance, is so very important. Thinking back to the earlier European renaissance, that one, like the one that we're in the midst of today, emerged out of a period of extreme stress. If you think back in the middle of the 14th century, that uh, it was the time of the Hundred Years' War, the deplorable conditions of, of feudal society, and, and the Black Plague, which killed a third of Europe's population. And back then, the concern was uh, the future of human life. Today, by contrast, it's a concern for the future of all life. Absolutely. If you think about the sixth great extinction and what people are referring to as the Anthropocene, that's the stimulus. Uh, that's a huge stimulus to this, to this renaissance. It's what's, what's giving it momentum, and, and it's what gives the people who were driving it, such as you and, and uh, uh, hopefully me. Uh, uh, Absolutely. What, what motivates us to get out and, and start talking about this and tell the good stories. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that is the whole purpose of this podcast, but it's also the purpose of the fantastic network we have where we, we're really yeah. pooling our our uniqueness, the unique perspectives that we each bring and to bringing it together, because that's going to allow for a richer, richer dialogue. And, and not just that, but but a, a clearer way forward, I think, you know, it, it's talk is easy, but that's that's not the part we're on now. We have to really move fast. So I, I think sure it's do. extremely exciting. So thank you very much, Jay, for being on the program. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And I look forward to chatting with you again. We'll definitely be doing that. No question. 
Okay. <laughs> Thanks. So, bye for now. I'm Donna Jones. I provide personal growth for business, mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth at a personal and organizational level has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fromInsight2Action.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A.